0: This program is brought to you by A to B Media Partners. Be sure to listen to the After Two Beers podcast on Apple iTunes, Pocket Cast, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. Also be sure to visit All All right, hello After Two Beers fans. Dutch Dalton joined tonight by Ryan Brewer. Much like we are trying to do, we're trying to live out our dream here of, of being these... Someday Podcast Superstars. You're a recording artist, and I guess you're basically out trying to do the same thing.
1: Yeah, just uh, trying to play my songs in front of as many people as possible, I suppose, is the name of the game. So how long have you been recording your your records, and how long
0: have you been performing in front of individuals?
1: Well, uh, I've been performing for a long time. Um, Like so many musicians, as I've come to know, I started in church. My folks were youth pastors, so started performing there really early on, kind of been performing ever since, and then I, when I got to about a senior in high school, I, I really started to play out with some some friends and kind of formed my first band that year, and I played in bands up until, I guess, seven years ago. June of, of uh, 2011, I went solo, so June of this year was my, my seventh anniversary as a solo act, and, and I've been recording... Uh, and releasing albums as ryan and brewer ever ever since now is this your
0: your only gig or are you supplementing the income with a real job
1: <laughs> i actually um have been have been full time pretty much the whole seven years uh i just actually this fall gave myself a little a little moratorium or or sabbatical if you will and and uh took a gig teaching songwriting uh and two sections of Survey of the music industry at Purdue Fort Wayne. that's been an interesting challenge is doing the whole teaching thing and kind of putting myself in the in the professor's shoes. I like things that are hard, like things that are difficult, so it's it's definitely that. I, I feel very comfortable teaching the songwriting class. The survey of the music industry class is a little different because uh, the the industry has been in such upheaval in the last you know 10 to 15 years. That I don't think anybody really knows what they're doing. Uh, so to to stand up in front of bright-eyed and, and bushy-tailed college freshmen and and tell them that I know how to make them successful in the music industry, it seems dis disingenuine at times. But I've kind of tried to craft the class around that idea that everything is everything is a rule until it isn't, and everything works until it doesn't. So <laughs> it's been interesting. It's been fun. You mentioned you, that you teach songwriting. How, How hard
0: is, is that to do, to be able to guide someone, to be able to take whatever they're thinking on the inside and put it on paper so it connects with an audience but also it, it delivers their story?
1: It's definitely not easy to do. Well, I suppose the goal is actually to kind of demystify the 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 practice of songwriting. Um, my whole premise for the songwriting class is every unique individual has lived a unique life under unique circumstances from a unique perspective, and therefore they have something unique to say. Really, that means to me that anyone can write a song. Uh, It's not going to be brilliant right off the bat, and it's my firm belief that the the only way to write a good song is to write a lot of really bad ones. So... (laughs) (laughs) more so than me perhaps giving them formulaic advice on how to take their feelings and emotions and put them into what's going to be a song that connects with an audience it's instilling the kind of the understanding that it's a work ethic that it's that you have to do the work that you have to sit in front of the paper and let it make you un- feel uncomfortable and you know just trust that if you're sitting down every day at the altar of the muse and sacrificing sweat and ink, she will visit you. It's kind of that kind of more instilling that faith that if I do this and I am passionate about it, it will eventually work. Uh, I think people quit and that's the problem. They give up or they just didn't have the passion yeah. in the first place. Maybe a little of both. It's very easy. It's an industry and a and a practice in general that that it's in which it's very easy to become discouraged. Uh it's kinda like being a salesman in that way. I I, I heard somebody say once that uh as a professional salesman, your job is to hear people say no. And I and I think that's kind of how it is as a songwriter too. Your job is to, <laughs> you know, kind of spill your guts out over a riff or a or a progression and then play it in front of people and have them go, eh, not for me over and over and over again (laughs) until until uh until it starts to land in some way with some people Uh, so i think i think yeah i think the the main focus of the class is that like yeah it's hard and yeah it's uncomfortable and no it's not not simple and quick and and it has to be treated like a job and um we talk a lot about how you know songwriting is not only important to you, meaning the individual writing, but it's also important on a macro level. It's important to society as a whole. Uh, we kind of say the things that other people wish they could or, or don't quite have the time or desire to put the effort into making themselves say. So we kind of show them a mirror in a way that they don't want to look into a mirror. And so it's kind of our job. So we have this obligation to write, and then also for the for the serious writer, it's 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 like lifeblood. It's something you have to do to stay sane. So, uh, c- commercial or pop songwriting is basically just trying to harness that thing you do in order to stay alive or stay sane. Harness that thing and turn it into uh, a practice by which you can get paid and be able to literally live. So, it's uh it's a, it's a fun class. It's also challenging. With these
0: new sharing of of music now via Spotify or Apple Music and things, a lot of bands now have to make more and more road trips because that's the way they make their money. It's not off record sales like it used to be. Is that what you see as well as is even someone that's still trying to get a foothold in the industry is that you just have to constantly be on the road?
1: Yeah. It's kind of, like I said, that's kind of why I, I gave myself this, you know, this moratorium in the fall, in the autumn time to be able to teach this class. It's, it just gives me some time to kind of reset and, and not have to so much be on my toes. But yeah, for the, for the most part, the remainder of the year is spent on the road. And the thing is, it, it's a litmus test that happens in a really quick and organic way to find out whether or not you really want to do this music thing or whether or not you want to have a day job and do it on the side and part of what I what I try to tell my students and part of what I try to tell fellow performers and stuff within the local scene is that like there's no shame in that game at all there's no shame at all in being like I don't want to sleep on the floor or in the back of my car and eat peanut butter sandwiches and be broke and not be able to have meaningful relationships. And I don't want to do that. I just want to, you know, play my songs that make me happy on the side of my day job. That's totally fine. But I think there are a lot of really hard questions you have to ask yourself before you're willing to be, you know, comfortable in that skin. And I think I think a lot of the problem that a lot of people have is that they, they haven't really had that conversation with themselves where they go, Listen, I'm not really in it to suffer. <laughs> I'm in it to have fun. And that's fine. But you it, it, it really changes the way you talk about yourself and it really changes the game plan for how you try to execute your career. And I think a lot of people would do better to have that that kind comp- of difficult conversation with themselves earlier on.
0: In the late '60s, early '70s, you know, you really started to hear the the term singer songwriter more, and yeah. it's kind of at times a more poppy version of folk music, but it's still it's all about the message of the song. It's it's not about a, a catchy hook or things. It's it's about telling that story. Do you feel like the music industry has lost a lot of what you would call quote unquote singer songwriters?
1: Um, that's a good question. I, I... I would say there's money to be made uh, and there, is, there, there are careers to be made for, for songwriters and there are people who still care about that stuff. You know, the, the, the house show industry, uh, and that's kind of a weird way to say it, but, you know, the, the, the economy of people having shows in their living room has absolutely exploded in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. And that's because there are still quite a few people who care about listening to stories. And, you know, I, I don't know where I read this, but I read it somewhere. It surely didn't come out of my brain because I'm not that smart. But somebody, somebody said, you know, back in the day, you would want to have 10,000 fans. And now you're like, I'm okay with having 1,000 super fans so instead of having 10,000 people who are willing to spend like $10 on your music per year, because you brought out one record and they bought it, um, you're looking to have like a thousand super fans who are going to spend, you know, 50 to a hundred bucks on you a year. And that mean going to all your shows and having you come play their house and buying all your t-shirts and, um, people do the GoFundMe and the Patreon thing. And, Trying to get people to 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 engage in the music in that way, and and I have a lot of friends. Like I I only I only say this because I've seen it. Like I know that they that people exist out there who really care about songs and stories, and and uh, they care about the you know the poetry of the thing. And um, I think that 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 it still exists, I guess. So yeah, you might have lost a lot of it in maybe a commercial way, but that underground's still there. And that's kind of part of what the the upheaval of the industry has caused. Like it's, music's never been more democratic. Like the, the the power really is in the hands of the people to listen to what they want to listen to and, and, and uh, you know, kind of forge their own listening habits. And um there's still a lot of people who are taking that power. And there are a lot of people who aren't. <laughs> there are a lot of people who just listen to whatever is on the radio. But there are a lot of people who are going out and looking for stuff.
0: Well, you know, and that's the beauty of of today is, you know, talking about Spotify a second ago, our podcast is on Spotify. You know, we're on iTunes and Stitcher and Pocket Cast. And the beauty, though, there's five, literally 500,000 podcasts out there. It's still an opportunity for me to do what I like. And if you find your audience, to your point, even if it's just Mm a thousand fans that really like it, then how can you not consider that a success if you're really impacting the individuals that get your message?
1: For sure, exactly. I, I yeah, I agree a hundred percent. I I always say, and I, I've you know I said this to a lot of my fellow artists. And I, I, if you're worried because you're not making enough money off your Spotify s- streams, especially at the level that I'm at. I would have concerns that you're on Spotify for the wrong reasons. The money is to be made on the road and the money is to be made playing in front of people's faces. And you got to hope that you can use a tool like Spotify to keep them engaged in the meantime. And, um, you know, I, it's such a, it's such a weird gray area for me because do I think Spotify is paying out quote unquote fairly? (sighs) I'd like to say no. Um but I mean what is fair? I mean I you know if you're getting one spin on terrestrial radio, ultimately tens of thousands of people perhaps could be hearing that one spin. And if you're getting spun once on Spotify, chances are someone's got like shitty Apple you know uh, earbuds in and they're listening to it in their solitude. So it's it's not the same it's not it shouldn't be paid out the same and and there is there a middle ground yeah for sure and we got to try to you know get closer to it but spotify is a means to an end if one person who wouldn't have heard my music otherwise hears it because of spotify you know once a week or once a month or whatever then i'm like hey it didn't cost me anything to get on spotify so it's kind of free, you know. And I, and I, and I, to, to your point about podcasts, I love podcasts. And podcasts, actually, ever since I became a, podca- a podcast convert a, uh, a year or two ago, I perhaps ashamed to say the, the amount of total music that I listen to has has decreased a lot because I am listening to podcasts so much.
0: So you talk about you know a singer songwriter, you know Leonard Cohen took years before he felt like Hallelujah was complete.
1: Yeah, I don't think he ever decided it was complete.
0: What's the longest you've ever spent writing a song?
1: Oh, good question. I heard John Mayer say it very succinctly in a way that I that I hadn't up to that point. I'm paraphrasing, but it's kind of an uh, it's a very arrogant belief system to, to say that you can tell whether a song is gonna be good or not before you finish it. So I, I, I know a lot of songwriters that'll get like, you know, a verse in and'll be like, ah, that's terrible and then they just quit. Well I always finish all of the songs that I start. And then later on, I may go, man, that song really didn't pan out, but I really like that line. And then I go through and I scavenge that line and use it for future songs. So there are lines that have been with me for more than 10 years that I don't feel like I've, I still don't feel like I've used in the best possible way that they could be used. But there are other lines that I've, Put in songs three and four times. And that song may go away, but that line's like, ah, man, I'm still really into that line, and I'll bring it back out and, and, and put it in a different song. So I guess I've got lines that have been with me for more than a decade. Uh, probably any one song, probably a year or so. When I was in college, I used to sit in class and just fill notebook after notebook after notebook with just writing. Just writing whatever just to keep myself awake in class. And then I would go home and, and, you know, to my dorm room and sit there with my guitar and start playing riffs and decide if any of it was something I could fit into a riff. Well, as I got more comfortable on my instrument and and kind of moved to where I was writing, maybe sometimes I was kind of playing music first. I got to a point where I wouldn't write anything down until the song was completely finished. Really? Because I felt like it kind of, yeah, it kind of allowed the song to kind of breathe and change. And I was kind of of the opinion that if I was playing a song, you know, 15 times one day because I couldn't quite get it right. And then I set it down and came back to it the next day and couldn't remember any of it, then it probably wasn't that good to begin with. So I just, I don't, I don't write anything down until I feel like the song is good and finished. Uh, So anytime I actually record a record and put out a record, you know, it gets to that point where you're doing album art and stuff like that. And people will be like, okay, we'll just send over the lyrics. I have this thought that I'm like, ah, shit, I gotta, I gotta sit down and write all the lyrics down to these songs because I haven't written them down yet. Um, But just within the last year or so, I've started sitting and writing on notebook paper and then getting the guitar out and kind of going back to doing it the way I used to do it. I think it's kind of about, for me, it's kind of about up, it's kind of about upsetting the apple cart. Yeah, I know it, I know it, I know it. For me, it's kind of about like upsetting the apple cart a little bit. Like it's like every once in a while, I'll just try to do something completely different to kind of change my outlook on on the process. Um, and I've kind of fallen back in love with just sitting down and writing and writing and writing, and then getting out my guitar and starting to play, and then going back through and scribbling out and rewriting and all that kind of stuff and it's it's been kind of fun that way but but yeah I guess I guess ultimately in a, in a long rambling way to answer your question I think probably a year is the, <laughs> the longest it's ever taken me to finish a song.
0: There's a great documentary series that came out last year on HBO it was called The Defiant Ones.
1: Yes I haven't watched it yet it's on my list.
0: It's it's very very good and there was a part in the documentary where Patty Smith had suggested that they wanted her to record a Bruce Springsteen song. Bruce wasn't going to use it And Patty made the comment that she never used somebody else's writing. She wrote all of her own songs. Is it weird for you to perform songs that you don't write?
1: Um, It depends a lot on the context. I do a lot of longer gigs at perhaps, you know, bars or whatever, where, you know, I'll be playing for three hours. And there's kind of an expectation that every once in a while you throw in a song that everybody knows and and i used to i used to fight that i used to fight that a lot i would say you know i can play my own songs and they're good enough and people will enjoy it and they're not going to get upset that they didn't hear you know american girl for the 27th time that week um and i used to i used to fight that a lot but i kind of got to a point where i realized like first of all man like don't be so arrogant as to as to think that you can't learn anything from playing somebody else's song when that song was a massive hit or when that songwriter that you're playing the song by you know, if I'm playing a Tom Petty tune or if I'm playing a Dylan tune, or if I'm playing a Jason Isbell song or I'm playing a Rod Stewart tune or a Tom Waits song, like don't be so arrogant that you think that there's nothing to be learned or nothing to be gained from learning and playing somebody else's song who came before you. So I, 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 I wouldn't want to necessarily I, i've i will take that back i haven't up to this point felt the urge to include someone else's song on a record um but i often very often am, am playing other people's songs live um so it, depending on the context sometimes it feels a little weird but but like i said um there's a lot to be gained in that. There's a lot to be gained from sitting down and playing the song, learning and then playing the song of somebody else.
0: What's the one song you've heard that you wish you had written?
1: Oh man, there are a bunch. There are a bunch. I really wish I, I really wish I had written "Downtown Train," uh, which is a Tom Waits tune that uh, Rod Stewart covered and made made popular. Uh, I I love that song. Uh, this uh, the kind of the third verse that where he says. Uh, I know your window and I know it's late I know your stairs and your doorway that to me like the way he chose to put three very visually um, distinctive descriptions of the setting so I know your window I know your stairs and your doorway those are those are three very physical things and then he says and I know it's late in the middle and I would never think to do that and and I just like simple things like that really really get my goat sometimes I'm just like man that's great I wish I'd re- I thought of that um, oh man, pretty much, pretty much any Tom Petty song. I wish I would have written. Jason Isbell, there's a song off his uh, last record called Molotov, that I think is absolutely brilliant. Um, like anything Phil Collins ever wrote, I think Phil Collins is absolutely brilliant. Just about anything, any anything Roger Miller. I'm a huge Roger Miller fan. I think he is so. I think he's so brilliant and funny. Um, What's your favorite um, Roger Miller tune? I've been covering Dang Me a lot lately. Uh, that might be my favorite. Uh, I love Chuggalug. I think he's so smart. What's the funny thing about my dad is my dad's actually got a decent voice, but he's such a goofball that he never actually takes it seriously and tries to actually sing. He's always singing in some other voice other than his own. And he used to sing... a Roger Miller tunes When we were little kids Like in the Roger Miller voice and, and I just I thought it was so funny And as I got older And kind of went back And listened to him I was like These are great tunes
0: Do Wackadoo doo And Kansas City Star And and you know There's, there's so many great songs and, and I'm with
1: King of the Road
0: Oh yeah Well King of the Road um, Kind of is, is all by its own I mean it's It's uh Because I'm with I love Chuggalug And I actually Attempted to do that At karaoke From time or two And uh, But yeah He was I mean he was a clever writer And then He did a version of Bobby McGee And And uh, It's it's an
1: Yeah I've actually got that version On vinyl Do you really? Got that Yeah Yeah and I hate that song In every other aspect
0: (laughs) Um, (laughs) Well you know what That's gonna be my next question Was So you talked about Some of the songs That you wish you had written Which ones In your opinion Are the ones that are The most overplayed Or the most overrated
1: yeah. Overrated. How is I, and I keep coming back to this. I always feel really arrogant saying things like overrated. Cause I'm like, I, who am I like to, to, to point that out. But I, but I do, there are songs that I do really hate. Like, and, um, like I have and, one and I I, can't, I absolutely can't stand Bobby McGee. I can't, I, if I like, if I never, the, the way I always put it is, it, you know, if I, if I never heard Bobby McGee one more time, I, I would be absolutely ecstatic.
0: See, I'm that way with Hotel California.
1: Really? Yes. I I pretty regularly go back to Hotel California and just marvel in it. I think
0: it for me it's so overplayed and it's been dissected yeah. so much and for sure. And it's funny because I'm a huge Joe Walsh fan, and in ex- yeah, it, it's it's a running joke for most people that I hate the Eagles, but uh, it's really not that I hate the Eagles so much as I really just don't like that song and i think it's just because it's been so overplayed
1: yeah well it, 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 there's no question that it's been overplayed um there are a few songs that i that i certainly think are overplayed that i like anyway and that's probably that's probably the biggest example i i don't ever really get tired of of hearing that tune i think there's i think there that i i might skip through the first 3 intro uh phrases because i think those are a little self indulgent for no reason. Um but and i might have had the ending solo fade out about 45 seconds earlier than it did, but um there are a lot of things about
0: So there's really only like a few seconds of the song you like. <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, i love i i really do like i like the 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 I like the feel of it but I do understand that it's about 2 minutes longer than it needs to be. Oh, yeah. Um that one for that one for sure. Um My favorite part I of that song others. is the end.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: there are other songs, there are other songs that I'm also like uh hey this song is uh this song is not at all the best song by this artist. That happens to me a lot. Um where I'm where I like like you know people hate like piano man. I'm pretty indifferent about Piano Man, but anytime you say Billy Joel to like a like a person who's a cursory fan of music, they're like, "Oh, Piano Man," and I'm like, "Man, come on!" Like,
0: <laughs> I love Billy Joel, and when you were talking earlier about having you know like certain sentences that you just love, and that's how yeah. scenes from Italian Restaurant came about was he basically had two or three songs that he just didn't have finished, and he threw them together. Oh. And, that's great.
1: Yeah. And that's. I did not know that story. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, like, when he talks about, you know, at the beginning, it's, you know, a bottle of red, a bottle of white. That's one song. And then when he goes into the story about, um, you know, the young couple that got married right out of high school and, and, and yeah. He combined those.
1: I love that tune. I, my favorite, what's your favorite Billy Joel tune?
0: Oh, you know, it, it depends on my mood, but um, she's always a woman is phenomenal to me.
1: N- I, always a woman knocks me on my can. Every time I hear it, it's the only Billy Joel song that I that I cover when I'm when I play live. I love that song. Yeah. I love that song. That just so many lines in that are just he has no business being that brilliant and he is. Um you mentioned uh karaoke. Do you do you have a go-to karaoke song? <laughs>
0: yeah. It's uh it's Big Balls by ACDC. <laughs>
1: That's brilliant.
0: Yeah. And it's mostly because, like your dad would do, you know, I'm just trying to be goofy. You know, deep down, I'm more of an entertainer. I don't, I have a horrible voice for for singing. So
1: I, I, mine is, uh, mine is with, without, without exception, um, I always sing, um, Eddie Money Shaken at karaoke. Yeah. I, I love Eddie Money, I think he's extremely underrated.
0: I, I've got to ask, because so I'm just curious, how many times have, has the word free bird been yelled at you over the course of your, your oh. time performing? Um, and, it, and I have to assume lot. musicians hate it.
1: A lot of times. Um, it's The thing is, it's, it's really only started happening to me since I started playing bars pretty regularly, and I never really played bars when I was in bands. So I've only really been playing bars for the last seven, seven, eight years or so. And so it's really only happened to me then. And it's almost like it's become such a cliche that it reflects more poorly on the person who screams it now right? than than it used to. Like, it used to be like, oh yeah, that guy said Freebird and that artist was embarrassed. Like, now it's like, the guy said Freebird and everybody in the crowd is like, shut the f*** up, dude. Like... <laughs> Like Everybody gets mad at the guy instead of uh, laughs at the artist. So it's actually, um, it's not so bad. I don't hate it so much. I used to really get mad anytime when someone would request a specific cover. I used to be like, you know, I'm up here like pouring my heart and soul onto this guitar and you're like requesting other people's music and, and that's annoying to me. Right. But I I had to really come around to the fact that, you know, I had to just dissect what that is at its core. And what that is, at its core, um, is that person who does not have a musical um, education background. That person's not like, you you can assume that your average person in a bar isn't highly musically educated. They are listening to you, and they go, this person is good. You know what else I think is good? You know, desperado. I would really like to hear this person play Desperado because I think Desperado is good and I think this person is good. Like, is that person trusting you enough with a song that they love that they would love to hear your take on it? And when I started to think about it like that, it really, and it I could be total bullshit, but at least makes me feel a little better when someone requests somebody else's songs. I'm going to open my second beer because its uh, it, it seems apropos. <laughs>
0: We appreciate it. It's one of the rules to be on the show, so.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I, I wanted to make sure that I was, I, I'm not necessarily, all of that stuff um, that we just said was before the second beer, so I don't know if any of it counts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> all right. If I was interviewing someone that performs music for a living and didn't ask, um, you know, who are your influence or who influenced you, then I wouldn't be doing my job right, so.
1: It feels like it's an expected question.
0: Yeah, right? So who's like who influenced you but also who do you listen to today that maybe people listening to the podcast that enjoy kind of singer-songwriter kind of music um uh, that they should be listening?
1: Okay. Um well I I would have to go way back to say like who were the earliest influences my like I said my folks were youth pastors. So I was at my first music festival when I was 5. I think because I'm going to ask my, one more question, and uh, you know, then we'll, we'll talk about
0: you know, your music and where we'll so see the, it. But if I had a magic ladies ticket ladies right ladies now Christian to
1: Christian And I me. said so, you so, could go um, see any
0: uh, individual or band Smith alive for me or that has Charlie gone off.
1: Peacock was big. For who would you then? When I my mom first told me I could buy my my very first record with my own money uh she was like you know here's some here's some money you can you can pick whatever you want out and of course she gave me a christian music magazine that i had to go through and pick out so i basically just looked at all the album covers and i was like w- what would she not buy me herself um and so i uh i decided on a band called five iron frenzy and it's a a a punk ska band and to this day i stand by everything they've put out there
0: I'm going to ask one more question. If I had a magic sure. ticket right now to hand you and I said you could go see any individual or band alive or that has gone on, who would you want to see live?
1: Oh man, that be that's really hard. That's really hard. Um I actually <laughs> I I got to it was a very busy year this past year. I got to knock two of my remaining like three um bucket list bands off of my list. I I got to see Rod Stewart and I got to see uh the Decemberists. And my my bucket list is to see The Who before any more of them die. I've never gotten to see The Who. And um I very much w- want to see a band called The Early November from my high school and college years and I want to see Kendrick Lamar Uh, Those are three that I really want to see. Um, But if I, like, if I have the ability to, like, time travel and go back and see something, I'd have a really hard time, like, not going back and seeing The Who at Woodstock. Like, I think that would be absolutely incredible. Um, But I would almost say, like, I would have to go see, like, I would have to go see Hendrix, probably. And it's for the most cynical reason ever. Uh, It's because... It's, in my humble opinion, every Hendrix record sucks. Like he's he's a phenomenal artist that never recorded a record that was worth a shit. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> so well, don't pull any so fun, would Tell like- us how you
0: really feel about him.
1: <laughs> so I so I would want to like I would want to go back and see him live so that I can be like like I intellectually understand how important Hendrix is and how he just absolutely changed the game moving forward. But, uh, but, but, I, but I like in a very real world sense, like in like tactile, can I touch it and feel it and describe it? I really have no understanding of why he's so good. Um, I, would, I would love to go back and be able to watch him so I can go, oh, no, yeah, now I get it because all those records suck and they don't do them <laughs> justice.
0: <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's funny you say that, but it's, there's certain artists that are definitely better when they're live. The one that jumps out to me was Peter Frampton, who, you really was struggling until they released the live album.
1: Oh yeah, Frampton Comes Alive was huge for me as a kid because my dad told me that story. He was like, "This guy, you know, was recording records and just couldn't get famous, and then he just put out this live record and it just exploded." And I was just so fascinated by that. And then, like to this day, I'll put on Frampton Comes Alive and just be like, "Wow, this is really good."
0: Right. Yeah. There's certain artists I'm sure that. Uh, you know, I go back to the Beatles, but when they were playing the music that I really liked, they didn't even tour then. Um,
1: right. Well, it's insane to think about the fact that, like, what, what was it, Dodger Stadium that they played? or
0: They played at uh, Shea Stadium when they came to New York, New York, and, um, mm. and so that was in 64. They actually played in Indianapolis at uh, the Pepsi Coliseum.
1: Really? Yeah. That'd be incredible. Yeah. I read a thing about they were talking about when they were at, yeah, it was Shea Stadium. You're right. Yeah. Like uh, I read a thing where they were talking about like they just, they literally, it was so loud in that room they could not hear. And monitors didn't exist then. Like You didn't have stage monitors blowing back in your face. So those dudes were able to just like one, two, three, four, bam, and hit every harmony perfectly without being able to hear themselves. That's wild. That's insane to me.
0: You travel a lot. You know, you were I think you were just in Wisconsin or you're on your way to Wisconsin.
1: By the time this uh by the time this airs, I will have just been in Wisconsin, yes.
0: What takes you there? Like I I looked at your schedule and you've got a ton of time in Indiana, clearly.
1: Well, I've I've been I've been really I've been really um, sedentary, I suppose, and then I've been you know kind of sticking around Indiana because of um, my my newfound domesticity and also my uh, you know my um, sabbatical that I've been taking to to teach at Fort Wayne. So I haven't been touring um, but in over the course of my touring for the last you know seven years or whatever I, I've just got places that I've fallen in love with. Uh, I, I absolutely love New York City. I, I can't get enough of playing in Manhattan and Brooklyn, um, Long Island City. I absolutely love that stuff. Um, but Appleton, Wisconsin has become one of my places that I absolutely love to go. Um, they have, yeah, they have a festival there uh, in August each year called The Mile of Music. And they, they will quite literally take a mile of the town and, and, you know, kind of block it off. And every single building that has doors on it has music. So like the barber shop and the hatch store and the, the secondhand store and the, uh, it, you know, every restaurant and bar and coffee shop and, and, uh, kitsch, kitschy store, like all of them have music and, Um, the, the people in that town just really understand what it takes to make a festival successful. And they, there's a, there's a local, um, there's a local dentist who I, I, this, this is going to sound crazy. And that's because it is, there's a local dentist who donates dental work for every single artist on the festival every single year. And by that, I mean, I went in and had a checkup, and I have not had, I've not been to the de- dentist in over a decade uh, until two Augusts ago when I went to Milo Music. And as part of the artist package, he donates dental work. And I went in, they gave me a checkup, they gave me a cleaning. And the lady, and I'm very proud of this, the lady said, You, you have not been to the dentist in how long? And I said, Over 10 years. And she said, You take impeccable care of your teeth, you have one cavity. And I was like, oh, man, what a bummer. I was hoping I had zero cavities. And she was like, no big deal. We'll go ahead and fill it. And in my head, I'm thinking like, oh, man, I'm, I'm just coming to the end of a run. Like, I, I have some money, but I don't have that much money. I, I guess I could put it on a credit card, blah, blah, blah. And she goes, I see you going through the numbers in your head. I mean, we'll take care of it. And I was like, what? And she goes, uh, come with me. And she picked me up and she took me to a different room and set me down in the room. And the dentist came in and filled my cavity and sent me on my way free of charge. Yeah, that town just absolutely knows what it takes to make a festival successful. That You you get set. They go, hey, your first set of the week is a Thursday afternoon at 1 o'clock in a bar. And you're like, oh, my God, this is going to be dead. And you walk in, and it's just packed full of people. And the first thing they ask is, like, do you need anything? Is there anything I can do for you? Can I buy you a beer? Is the festival taking care of you? Do you need a place to stay? You can crash on my couch. I have a son who plays guitar. You could jam together. Like, they just... They want to take care of you. They want to make sure you're fine. And, and it's be, the, the reason that festival is so cool is because of the people in that town. So I try to go back there two or three times a year.
0: That's too cool. We'll need to get up there do a show.
1: Yeah, it's great. You should definitely do that. Uh, you should definitely go during mile. They also do half, half mile. Um, so halfway through the year, they do a half mile festival. Uh, and it's just you know all the main bars that have music anyway have three or four bands who come to mile and they have them come back and everybody comes out and is like, Hey, I haven't seen you since last year and all that. Is that the one where you get your eyes checked? Yeah. It's the way the, they do eyes for you at that one. <laughs> they do free haircuts. They do like free headshots. It's, it's insane. It's insane. The amount of stuff they do, free massages and free auditory checks and all this kind of stuff. It's crazy.
0: You know, again, thank you so much for being on the show. If you want to give us your, uh, your web page, your Twitter handle, all those kinds of things.
1: For sure. Uh, Ryan M. Brewer. So Ryan M. is in Matthew Brewer on everything. So if you search that on your, your social media site of choice, uh, you're going to find me. Uh, there was a time where Facebook was the only one where I didn't have Ryan M. Brewer because Facebook sucks. But uh, they eventually I, I was able to wrangle it back. So I have Ryan M. Brewer on everything, including dot com. So Ryan M. Brewer.com or Ryan M. Brewer on whatever your social media outlet of choice is. Yeah,
0: and we'll we'll include all your links for you as well. And and uh we have a ton of listeners in Indiana, Ohio. Um Chicago's a huge city for us right now with listeners. So if you go to Ryan's Great. web pages, um you can see all the locations, especially in Indiana. You got a lot of shows coming up.
1: For sure. Yep. Yep, and and I'll start I'll actually start, you know, getting back heavy on. You'll see you'll see the calendar start to fill up with tours again probably starting in uh, January or February. So, we'll start hitting the road again.
0: Well, enjoy the teaching. Good luck with that. I hope you enjoy your sabbatical. I uh yeah,
1: I am. I am. I am enjoying <laughs>
0: it. But it's been an absolute pleasure. We will have to do this again sometime soon. And uh
1: Yeah, I would love to. I would love to. There there's uh there's some some new music definitely on the horizon in 2019, so maybe I can come back and talk to you then.
0: Great. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thanks again.
1: Thank you so much.
0: All right, After Two Beers fans, want to make sure we thank Ryan Brewer again for being on the show. One of the coolest things about doing this podcast for me is I get to, to meet and talk to some really interesting individuals, and, and this was no exception. So make sure you check out ryanmbrewer.com, and playing us out on this week's show will be Ryan himself, with his new single, Hurricane.
2: By the time my plane touched down I was wound up like a clock They said the songs in your head are fine, young man But traveling with that guitar in hand Is rougher than the Soviet bloc. Bye-bye sobriety Bye-bye decorum